Hey, lovelies. Before we get started, two quick notes. First, the snuggle dress. My best-selling winter dress is in stock in two new colors, plus the black is also restocked. The snuggle dress is my version of a sweater dress that, just like a good snuggle with someone you love, is designed to make you feel incredible. It's made of a luxurious knit fabric and features a mock neckline and puff sleeves with a tight cuff. The body of the dress is cocoon-shaped, so you can move about your day comfortably, and it always looks fantastic. It comes in sizes extra small through 2X. The sizing is equivalent to my regular range of sizes 2 through 24. And the new colors are olive, which is this beautiful, deep, rich green, and mauve, the most flattering, like pinky purple color you've ever seen. I get a ton of compliments on the mauve every single time I wear it. The black, which is a great basic black winter sweater dress, has also been restocked. As I'm recording this, I'm nearly positive that most sizes of all three colors are in stock. I think that it's only the extra small in the mauve that is sold out. I definitely know for sure that the mauve has been going quicker than the other colors. The black I have a nice amount of, but listen, these go fast. So you're going to want to jump on that snuggly, cuddly train ASAP. Order the snuggle dress and learn more by going to impactfashionnyc.com. The second note is that this episode is the final in a four-part series on breast cancer in the Jewish community. You don't need to listen to the episodes in order, but if you missed the first three parts where three different women shared their real-life experiences with this disease, I highly recommend going back once you finish this episode. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I talk with a radiation oncologist about breast cancer. She shares why she decided to pursue the field, why patients with a diagnosis would usually not pursue a mastectomy, what a typical patient journey looks like through the medical system, and what we should all know about prevention. Obviously, I couldn't have a series on breast cancer without talking to a doctor. After speaking with Natalie, Shayna, and Shauna about their experiences in parts one through three of this series, I had many follow-up questions. Dr. Mimi Knoll is so wonderfully generous with her time and knowledge to help pin down some takeaways from those three stories. I was very obedient, quiet, always uh, reminded to smile more. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, happy child, but very serious. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we, we all we all know those kids who are just yeah, very, yeah, very... I, I laugh and joke a lot more as an adult, I have to say. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad that you've got a little bit of levity in your life. Did you always know that you yeah. wanted to be a doctor? No. So I actually grew up in a family of doctors. My mother's a pediatrician. My father is a vascular surgeon. And interestingly, both my parents had offices in the home where I grew up in Brooklyn. My mother basically always had it but then and when I was in high school my father built his office also on the first floor of our home so and I have uncles cousins lots of doctors so I sort of always had it in the back of my head as something that I could do if I wanted to but I didn't seriously consider it or pursue it until I was in college what is a vascular surgeon out of curiosity Sure. So a vascular surgeon does surgery on arteries and veins so the vascular system. Oh, okay. So it's not like major surgery. It's like, cause I'm trying to think how you do major surgery in your house. Yeah. So that's a good question. So 
vascular surgeons do all different types of surgery, but my father specifically um, focused on what's called access for hemodialysis. So patients that get dialysis, you need a way to access the blood when they get dialysis, meaning where you're going to stick them every single day. So um, there are different types of surgeries that are done to create access, whether with a fistula or a graft, and then um, those procedures can be done at an outpatient office. Oh, so like kind of like inserting a port, sort of? Things like that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Smaller surgeries, that they're still surgeries. They need to be done, you know, by a surgeon or by nowadays, uh, very often a vascular interventional radiologist, which is actually what my husband is. <laughs> so, <laughs> like I said, lots of doctors in the family. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. Um, yeah. Did your, I, 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 okay, did your, did your husband know what your father did when he decided to become that like he did, did. He yeah yeah he did so in medical school you know it's actually interesting because um majority of doctors don't know what they want to do until they're in medical school meaning they don't decide what specialty they want to do very often people go into medical school thinking they'd like to specialize in a certain field and then usually change their mind um, I would say an exception to that is psychiatry, just anecdotally, a lot of psychiatrists that I've spoken to, because I, you know, speak with lots of doctors, you know, they very often wanted to do psychiatry and actually pursue that field. But pretty much everyone else, you know, you go in, you know, you want to be a doctor. And then in your third and fourth year of medical school, you do what's called clerkships or rotations, and you sort of, you know, try out different specialties, and you can do electives, because you don't, actually get exposed to every single specialty um, and you sort of keep your eyes and ears open and see you know whose life you'd like to sort of model or be like or which attending you know you admire which field piques your interests you know what could you see yourself doing sort of every day forever mm -hmm. so it's a process um, and it just so happens to be that that's what my husband chose to do and he's super happy doing it. Okay. So during that same process, you, you are now a radiation oncologist. Yeah. So was it during that like third and fourth year of medical school that you said, this is what I'm going to do? Yeah. So for me, it's an interesting story. And actually uh, radiation oncology is a very small field. There are only about 200 residents per year, as opposed to thousands in other specialties like internal medicine, you know, there's so many more residents. So, you know, when you meet another radiation oncologist or even a radiation therapist, um, which is another field related to um, what I do, we work together in a team usually people have a story of how they sort of found out about the field. So for me, it was two things. One is my father-in-law is a urologist. Again, lots of doctors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he treats um, prostate cancer often in collaboration with a radiation oncologist for a procedure that's called brachytherapy or SEEDS. So he, you know, came home one day and was like, you know, I just did some prostate SEEDS today. I think you'd really like this. This is a great field. And pretty much that same Shabbos, my husband went to shul and met Dr. Chaim Gedgerman, Glenn Gedgerman, who was my former boss, because I actually worked for him after I, I finished my training. Um, but at that time, they had met for the first time. And he said, this is the best kept secret in medicine. Tell your wife she has to go into this field. And um, that was it. You know, I looked into the field. I, I heard about it. I put all my eggs in one basket because you sort of have to prepare 
or when you're applying to a specialty, especially if it's competitive, which it was at that time, um, you have to like set up rotations and electives and research and, you know, sort of make yourself a good candidate. So what was it about it specifically that that appealed to you? And can you explain what radiation oncology is? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, <laughs> jumping the gun here. So radiation oncologists treat cancer with radiation. So radiation is a way to kill cancer. Um, we use uh, what's called linear accelerators. Um, for the most part, with your these are these big machines. Um, basically, a patient lies down on a table, the machine moves a little bit, and it sends special light, special x-rays to kill the cancer. Sometimes what we're treating is a solid tumor, meaning an actual solid cancer that's there that we're shrinking with the radiation. For example, if someone has a head and neck cancer, very often we're actually shrinking the cancer or skin cancer, different types of cancers, um, or even a lung cancer, cancer in the brain, different types. And sometimes we're treating like microscopic cancer, uh, which is very much relevant to our discussion today around breast cancer. So for example, majority of women that have breast cancer, there's two choices for surgery. One is a mastectomy, which many women have heard about, where basically the whole breast is removed. And the other option is called a lumpectomy, where it only the cancer itself with a small margin, you know, an extra amount just to make sure all of it's removed is done. That's called the lumpectomy. And we follow that with radiation. So what that means is that usually the patients that I'm treating already have a diagnosis of cancer. I'm one of a few doctors that they have. So let's say it's a woman with breast cancer who's getting radiation. She's already had surgery. Very often, they already have been um, seeing or getting chemotherapy, though obviously many patients with breast cancer don't get chemotherapy. So I'm part of a team of doctors. And then also as part of my clinical practice, I'm part of a radiation team. So as myself, we have physicists, dosimetrists, nurses, radiation therapists. So it's, it's really collaborative type of environment, which I really enjoy. Um, and then other things that I knew right away that I would like is the fact that it's technology driven. So our machines are fascinating. Um, it's sort of artistic because we use scans that we actually draw on with special software to plan the radiation for each patient. Um, so there's just a lot of different things about it that, that I really, really liked. Also, one of my criteria for choosing a residency was that the hours wouldn't be crazy. So residency is, is always stressful. Um, that being said, you know, working 100 hours a week was something I was not willing to do. At that time, I had two children when I graduated medical school. Um, and my husband was also in the same year when we graduated. So, you know, I wanted to pick a field that I thought would, wouldn't be crazy, crazy hours. Like, for example, surgery was fascinating to me. Maybe in another life, I would have chosen to be a surgeon, but that was not happening. Um, you know, with how I chose, you know, to prioritize. Um, and, um, you know, it's also a field that I saw many leaders in the field working sort of part-time, meaning academic radiation oncologists, meaning the radiation oncologists that work in hospitals and large cancer centers, the, who are the ones that you can be exposed to in medical school um, and residency, it's routine for them to have one academic day, meaning one day where they don't see patients and they're, you know, having meetings and writing papers. And so I thought, wow, this is a great field, you know, sort of everyone doesn't work five days a week. So that would be a flexible field if in the future I wanted to do other things. And as it turned out, I, I very much did that. So uh, it was a good decision. 
yeah, I, I definitely hear that. I'm curious when it comes to like a, you know, you mentioned this lumpectomy followed by irradiation. Uh-huh. What? Okay. Thank God. Poo, poo, poo. All those things. <laughs> um, I've had close family members with cancer, but personally, I've never had to make these types of decisions, which I yeah. can only imagine are not fun to make. Yeah. And I'm I, I kind of think that if I like if somebody told me that I had some sort of cancer in my breast, I would be like, chop them all off. I don't want to think about it. But the idea of doing a lumpectomy and radiation is super stressful to me, like much more stressful than a mastectomy, which obviously is a big surgery and, and all that jazz. What would be a reason why a patient would choose to do that? Like, are there medical times when it just makes more sense to do that? Or is yeah. it an emotional thing? Yeah. So, so all these things are important and I have to say, we are so lucky to be part of a Jewish community where there are resources for patients to turn to, both in terms of helping them make decisions, in terms of support, getting through treatment, finding doctors, you know, you're right. When someone gets diagnosed, it very often can be overwhelming. It almost always is overwhelming and making the decisions can be very difficult. Um, once the conversations start though, um, usually the recommended treatment is very, very clear. Yes, there certainly are women who, you know, are diagnosed with breast cancer and they say, no matter what, I want a mastectomy, but that's quite rare to be honest. Most women, once they speak with their doctors, they learn that it's actually better to have a lumpectomy and get radiation. Um, the surgery is smaller, the recovery is easier. They don't require reconstruction, uh, meaning to create a new breast because the breast is not there. Um, radiation is not nearly as scary as most people think. Um, the side effects are for breast cancer are very, very minimal. Basically, um, it doesn't hurt. It takes about five to 10 minutes. It's every day, Monday through Friday for a couple of weeks, depending on you know the specifics about their cancer. And the most common side effects are feeling a little bit tired, not exhausted and lying in bed a whole day. That doesn't really happen, but um, just a little bit tired. And then also the skin gets a little bit red. Occasionally, some women get what's called, you know, in conversation, a radiation burn, but even that is quite rare and we give them special creams. So, you know, once they get the information um, directly from their physicians, um, usually most women decide to go ahead with the lumpectomy and radiation. Um, and that's definitely what's recommended in most cases. Okay. I, because I, the truth is, if you're not gaining anything, right, meaning the initial reaction that some people might have is, you know, I want to do everything, right? I want to be there for my kids. I want to, you know, do everything I can to get rid of this cancer and make sure it doesn't come back. But let's say all your doctors are telling you, you don't gain anything by doing a mastectomy. So why why would a person pick that? You Meaning know, that, like statistically, really... your chances are the exactly. same with or without. Exactly. Meaning, again, if there are certain cases that are different, they'll they'll do that. But for the majority of women that have a lumpectomy, they do that because their physicians are telling them to lose something in the sense that, you know, it's a more difficult surgery. Their recovery is more difficult. Um, you know, they lose a part of their body that's important, right, for... Right you know, um, um, for body image and, um, and they don't gain anything in terms of the cancer. So, so why do it? Yeah, I hear that, that, that makes a certain amount of sense to me. So when, 
yeah. I guess I just have mastectomy on the mind because as part of this series, of, yes. you know, I spoke with two women who, um, you know, had tested BRCA positive and then went ahead right. with preventative So that's a different situation, right? So majority of women that get diagnosed with breast cancer, the reason why they get diagnosed with breast cancer is because they have breasts. Meaning if someone doesn't have <laughs> that's breasts- That's a funny phrase. Yes. But think about it. If someone doesn't right. have breasts, they can't get breast cancer. So, you know, it's so important for women that are diagnosed with breast cancer to realize it's not their fault. There's nothing that they could or couldn't have done. The reason why they get breast cancer is because they have breasts and anyone with breasts can get breast cancer. In fact, about one in eight women will get diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. So, you know, think about, you know, whatever it is, your group of friends, your high school class, you know, there's gonna be a percentage of them that get diagnosed with breast cancer. Only a smaller percentage of those women have, you know, an inherited mutation that is the clear cause of their breast cancer. Meaning for most women that get breast cancer, we have no specific reason that we can say why they got it. It's just, we call it sporadic, meaning it just happened, right? It is what it is. Things happen. And that's why we recommend mammograms for women starting at age 40, because we know so many women are going to develop a breast cancer. So we'd rather find it when it's small and easy to treat instead of waiting for it to sort of get big, bad and ugly. And then it's a lot more difficult to treat and can obviously be, be life-threatening. So, you know, for women that it turns out they have BRCA, whether they get diagnosed at the time that they have their breast cancer, meaning they didn't know that they were BRCA positive until they had a breast cancer. And when right. they got diagnosed with breast cancer, they got testing. They said, oh, okay, it turns out the reason for this breast cancer was because of the BRCA mutation. And therefore they're at a higher risk of cancer in the other breast, ovarian cancer, different kinds of things. So therefore they might choose to go ahead with a bilateral mastectomy, meaning both breasts are, are removed because the risk of a cancer in that other breast is also high as opposed to other women where, you know, it's not as high. So yes, there are definitely situations where it makes sense for women to, you know, choose a mastectomy or why doctors may recommend it. Um, but it's, it's also important to know that many women who are BRCA positive don't get prophylactic mastectomies, meaning a mastectomy in advance of never having been diagnosed with breast cancer, right? Meaning their breasts are normal. They, they don't have a breast cancer. They just know that they're at a high risk of breast cancer. So some women think, well, let's say they have a lot of breast cancer in their family. So they're thinking, well, maybe I should get tested for BRCA. But then they say, well, I don't want to remove my breast. I don't want to have, but the answer is no, no, no. The reason to get testing is not to then get a bilateral mastectomy to prevent cancer because the breasts are no longer there. No, the reason is so that you know you're at a higher risk and then discuss what things to do, such as breast MRI, starting you know, breast screening at a younger age. There are different things to do. It's not because it's a death sentence. Right, so not, and, and also not everyone who tests BRCA positive will eventually develop a breast cancer, That's right? correct. So it's not 100% that if someone has BRCA, they will get breast cancer. That is not true, meaning a percentage of women that have BRCA don't get breast cancer. Um, but because so many of them do, 
our threshold for concern is much, much higher than the average woman. So a, a regular woman, we recommend starting mammograms at age 40. But if someone has BRCA, we know they can get a breast cancer much younger. So we start mammograms and ultrasounds and MRIs at a younger age. Same thing with MRIs. We don't do an MRI for every woman in the United States. Why? Because first of all, insurance companies won't pay for it. Oh, and they, they base that on a risk algorithm of how likely is it that the MRI will show something, therefore why are they going to pay for it, right? But it, it makes sense in the sense that, you know, why don't we every day of our lives get an MRI up and down our entire body and right. look for it, right? First of all, it would take hours and hours to do. It would be incredibly expensive. We would find things that we call like incidental lomas. Like we just find stuff. We don't know what they are. That they're biopsies. We're going to be spending our whole damn lives, you know, doing biopsies and things that are probably turn out to be nothing. So it has to be a risk benefit discussion of how likely is it that the person actually is going to find a cancer that we don't know about, but will eventually turn into something worse. And how likely is it to do a biopsy that turns out to be nothing? So it, it's, a, it's you know, a conversation. And that's why anyone that has a family history of breast cancer or is concerned about having BRCA should definitely have that discussion with their primary care doctor, with their OBGYN, uh, with a genetic counselor, with a breast surgeon, you know, any, any of the above. Yeah, that that all makes sense. And you just mentioned a whole ton of different types of doctors and oncologists and, and all sorts of things. Can you take me through like you are a radiation oncologist, so yes. you treat cancer with radiation. So like yes. if, if a patient has a mastectomy and then they're not going radiation, then they would never meet you. Right. Yeah. So that that was the case until about five, 10 years ago, in a sense that majority of women that had mastectomies um, didn't require radiation, but our criteria for recommending radiation after mastectomy has actually um, opened up a little bit, you know, and again, these are the, you know, the art and science of medicine, you know, they're, they're two different things and they're both important. Um, if women have certain criteria, even after having had a mastectomy, um, if we're concerned that they are at still a high risk of the breast cancer returning, um, specifically in the chest wall, right? Meaning wherever after the surgery, what's left is the chest wall or a reconstructive breast, we still sometimes treat. So it's not always the case that women that have a mastectomy don't need radiation. And that's again, another reason why surgeons who have this discussion with their patient will tell patients, it's possible if you have a mastectomy, you can avoid radiation, but we won't know for sure until after the surgery. And that's why, you know, brings up another important topic and that I very often share with my patients who, you know, getting back to our original discussion about anxiety around treatment, which certainly makes sense and is, is very understandable. So many people will tell someone who has a diagnosis, you should do this, you should do this, you should go to this doctor, you should get that treatment. What about this? What about that? The details are everything in cancer treatment. Everything is about the details and everyone's cancer is unique um, and everyone's history is unique. And therefore it's really, really difficult 
um, or impossible for someone who doesn't know the details to make recommendations. So I always, you know, share with my patients if they're getting overwhelmed from well-meaning friends or family that are giving them lots and lots of advice, you know, I remind them they're, I'm sure, wonderful people and they really want to help you and it's coming from a great place. But feel free to tell them, thank you so much. You know, my doctor tells me that everyone's cancer is different and this is what I need to do for my type of cancer. So it doesn't sound like there's really like a typical patient experience or treatment. You know, there are only because breast cancer is so common. So, you know, there are definitely, you know, generalizations like most women with breast cancer get a lumpectomy. Most women who get a lumpectomy get radiation. But, you know, to each individual person, there could be very specifics like what type of radiation they're getting. You know, is it a ductal carcinoma in situ, which is a stage zero? Maybe they don't need. Maybe they're above age 70 and their breast cancer is not aggressive. And, you know, so, yes, in terms of typical patients, there are a lot more of the typical ones. But any one specific patient could be atypical, right? Not in a bad way, just there are very specific reasons why they may or may not get certain types of treatment. So, you know, even breast cancer, what does that mean? Stage one breast cancer. There's different types of stage one breast cancers. There's, you know, hormone positive stage one breast cancer. There's HER2 positive stage one breast cancer. There's triple negative stage one breast cancer. I mean, there's a reason why it takes so long to become a radiation oncologist or a medical oncologist or a surgeon, right? There's a lot of things to learn. What are the difference between all those different types of doctors? Sure. So a surgical oncologist, most people would call their surgeon or their breast surgeon also can be called a you know surgical breast oncologist or breast surgeon uh different things but basically they're the ones that do the surgery for the breast cancer um in new york it's usually a physician that's fellowship trained meaning they've done a general surgery residency and then after that they do additional training specifically for breast surgery Um, And that is the physician that is usually the first doctor that someone diagnosed with breast cancer will see after their radiologist, meaning they'll go for a mammogram. Let's say we'll take a typical patient, right? 55 year old woman. She's been going for her mammogram every year. One year they say, oh, we saw something. We want you to come back. We want to take more pictures. Now, just an FYI, many women freak out at that point, totally understandably, but actually most of the time, when they call them back, it actually turns out to be nothing. It's clear that's why the first one was called a screening mammogram. The next one is called a diagnostic mammogram. You might ask, well, why don't they just do the better scan right away? Then I wouldn't have to come back. Well, the answer is it's more radiation. It takes more time, right? There's, there's different reasons why, but you start with a screening mammogram, you know, come back, we'll take more pictures. Come back, take more pictures. Let's say it turns out it is a cancer. But they don't know yet just from the picture. They say, this looks very suspicious. We want you to get a biopsy. The woman gets a biopsy. It's a phone call. It turns out this is a breast cancer. You need to see a breast surgeon. They'll go and see their breast surgeon. Breast surgeon will talk to them and say, this is a cancer. It looks like it's really small. It looks like we can just do a lumpectomy, take it out, and you'll need radiation after most likely. You know, you may or may not need additional treatment like hormonal therapy, you know, chemotherapy, again, if it's really, really small. 
every surgeon is different. Where I practice at Montefiore Nyack Hospital, which is near Muncie, very often our surgeon will have the patient see myself and the medical oncologist, and I'll talk about it in a second, even before surgery, just so women know what to expect and understand about their overall treatment. But I would say most places, the surgeon will first take the patient to surgery and then have them see the medical oncologist and myself. Um, so we talk about the surgeon. So then there's the medical oncologist. The medical oncologist is what most people call just their oncologist, um, meaning a doctor that gives chemotherapy. And you, sometimes it's called a hematologist oncologist. Why? Because oncologists, as part of their training, also learn about hematology. Hematology is not always cancer. Sometimes people, it's called benign hematology. So you know, depending on their practice, they may do only oncology or hematology, oncology. Sometimes people call it their hemonc or their oncologist. So different <laughs> ways of saying the same thing. Um, but they're the ones specifically for breast cancer who will make a recommendation about whether the woman needs hormonal therapy. If the type of cancer that they have responds to hormones, usually they'll recommend a hormonal therapy pill that's taken after their surgery and radiation, usually for about five years, and that lowers the risk of the breast cancer coming back. In addition to that, the oncologist will also make a recommendation whether or not the patient needs chemotherapy. And chemotherapy so is a drug. Chemotherapy is um, a medicine that goes through the vein. So it's it's sometimes it's given by a pill, but for breast cancer, it's almost always given through the vein. So that means that the patient is like going to the hospital, getting an IV, sitting there for however long it takes. A couple for the of hours. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, they might get it every three weeks. They might get it every week, depending on the type of chemotherapy. Um, some women continue to get chemotherapy um, even after they finish their initial course. So they may get surgery, then chemotherapy, then radiation, and then continue with infusions. Usually that infusion is not a chemotherapy. It's actually an immunotherapy, which is similar to chemotherapy, but it's specifically targeting um, one of the markers on the cell. But again, these are very general terms. Most people would just consider that, oh, they're, they're continuing with treatment. They're continuing with their systemic therapy you know, for a year. Okay, that that makes sense to me. You, I mean, these phrases like stage zero, stage one, stage two, these are all super common phrases. Yeah. And basically all that I know is that like stage four is bad and stage zero is better, but like no cancer is good. What are, yeah. what do all those terms mean that like we throw them around? What is that, you know, sure. how, how, how are they used? Yeah, so the, the reason why we use those terms is to help us communicate, right? So, you know, in, in any field, you know, in your in your career, right? You have terms that you say for you know different things related to sales or right, like different stages of you know selling or you know everyone has their own language. So in the language of oncology, the way that we communicate is through stages. So a stage, it's called a group, right? So stage zero, stage one, two, three, four. Not every cancer has a stage zero, but the cancers almost always have stage one, two, three, four. And that is composed of three subcategories called T and M. Tumor for T, node for lymph node, and M for metastasis. 
So the T stage for breast cancer, again, every cancer is different, corresponds to the size of the cancer itself, meaning the actual breast cancer in the breast. How big is it? Is it a centimeter? Is it two centimeters? Right, the size, okay? Then N is the lymph nodes. If there are no lymph nodes, it's N0. If there are lymph nodes, it could be N1A, it could be you know, N2C, it could, it, there's lots of different categories. And these are things you can easily you know, Google if someone's interested in looking more. You, know, you would Google breast cancer staging and you would see you know, the group stage, meaning stage 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, is a combination of the combined T and M. So if someone is M positive, meaning they have a metastasis, so what does that mean? Let's say someone you hear, right? Someone says, oh, you know, they have brain cancer. Very often what that means, what they're trying to say is that that person has breast cancer that's spread to the brain. How does the breast cancer go from the breast to the brain? It gets there through the blood. So it hematogenous spread. So what that means is that the cancer problem that they have is this breast cancer spreading around their body. And therefore, someone who's stage four, meaning they have cancer outside the breast, outside the lymph nodes, it went from the breast to the brain, for example, there's cancer spreading around the blood, they would need a chemotherapy or an infusion or an immunotherapy, some sort of what we call systemic treatment that goes also around the blood. So in the, like the problem, I mean, aside from like the overall cancer issue, but like the, the specific yeah. problem with that patient that you're just describing, it's not that they have brain cancer. It's they have breast cancer that's spread. That's very different from having Correct. like a glioblastoma. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So if you, so if you treat the breast cancer with something localized, like a mastectomy then, or a lumpectomy, which I'm learning now is much more common then yeah. you would, then you would still have the problem of like that wouldn't make the, the breast cancer that spread to the brain go away. Now you would just exactly. have breast cancer in your brain. You'd still need to treat that. Exactly. And this is a conversation I have all the time with my patients. And it's such a simple concept, but it's so confusing because it's it's not something that's, you know, you're not going to learn this in school, right? And it, it makes sense not to. Um, but that sort of helps frame the discussion around well, why would someone with a stage four cancer come to see me as a radiation oncologist, right? And the answer is because if they're being referred to me by their primary doctor, meaning their oncologist, who's the quarterback of the team, um, why are they coming to see me? Because I can help with something. And I'll make a recommendation whether or not I agree, but it's, it's almost always because that doctor thinks that radiation can help with a specific problem. The radiation is usually not going to help with the overall problem, meaning they still need co to continue being on systemic therapy. And, and it's so, so important to use the term systemic therapy. I'm at least in thinking about it because when we think about cancer going all around the body, until recently, the only way to slow it down was with chemotherapy. Right. But there are so many more treatments now that, again, depending on the specifics, women with breast cancer or many other types of cancers can get treatment that's not chemotherapy, but it's something similar in that it goes around the body, but it almost always has a lot fewer side effects, whether it's hormonal therapy, immunotherapy, combination. Um, and it's also, you know, in terms of, you know, a career decision, um, it's, it's really fulfilling to be able to help patients. Um, 
even if they have an incurable cancer. So if someone, let's say, has a stage four cancer and they're coming to see me, what kinds of problems could radiation help with? It could help with pain. It could help with tumors in the brain. So I do a lot of what's called radio surgery. So let's say someone has a breast cancer that went to the brain. Um, very often the systemic therapy can't get to the brain because the blood vessels are very, very tight going to the brain. Unfortunately, it let the cancer through, but it very often won't let the cancer treatment through. But radiation circumvents that because, you know, we can just target the brain itself with our with our technology, our machine. So very often I'll treat, you know, different metastasis specifically with radiation to help, like I said, with certain problems, whether it's cancer in the brain that we don't want to grow, we don't want that to cause neurologic problems, pain, um, or other kinds of things. So if you've hit a stage four cancer, is that at the point where it's incurable? So yes, we say the term incurable to communicate that this is never a problem we're going to stop worrying about, meaning they are never going to be able to say the cancer is gone completely. That being said, more and more, there are patients with cancer who can live a very, very long time with their cancer, meaning, and they can die from something else. So they're always going to have the cancer, meaning we're always going to be worried about it and checking, you know, and doing scans and, you know, being concerned that, you know, if it will come back, but very often the cancer it can be slow growing. It can be held at bay with different systemic therapies, especially newer ones. And they can live a very long time. Um, specifically for breast cancer, this is even common, you know, 10, 20 years ago, because certain types of breast cancer, specifically hormone positive breast cancer, women can unfortunately suffer from it for a very long time. You know, of course, it's sad they're suffering from cancer. On the other hand, it's, you know, really a miracle that they're able to live with their cancer for so long. Um, and that happens more commonly than people might think. You know, there are a lot of women walking around with breast cancer that no one ever knows. They don't tell anyone. You'll never know. Um, and that's just in, incredible. And then there are other women who, you know, are living with breast cancer and they also don't tell anyone. They could be going for treatment. They could look totally fine you know, um, and it could take, you know, a couple of years until unfortunately they, you know, the cancer um, unfortunately um, takes over and they die from it. So where does remission fall into all of this? So a stage four cancer will never go into remission? No. So remission is usually a term um, to explain that the cancer is very slow, meaning it's not visible. We can't see it, but we just know that it's probably there. Um, it, again, it can really mean different things depending on the type of cancer. We don't usually use that term for breast cancer, um, but it could be used, meaning let's say someone has a breast cancer that, you know, when they find it, it's in, you know, the spine and it's not anywhere else. And well, if it was radiation? a breast cancer that they found on the spine, wouldn't it also be in the breast? Yeah. So usually oh, okay. sometimes it's small. Sometimes it's small. Someone can get diagnosed, unfortunately, for the first time, let's say with breast cancer in the spine. I mean, they do, they, they come to the hospital, they have pain in their back. They, you know, do a biopsy, look it under a microscope. It's a breast cancer. Then they look at the breast and like, oh yeah, there's this little thing here, whatever. Okay. So that patient is going to start getting systemic therapy. 
why again because how did it get to the spine through the blood so they need systemic therapy okay let's say we give radiation to the spine because they're in pain and it's the only spot so in addition to the treating you know all the cancer so to speak we give extra treatment to the spine let's say you know they get a scan three months later and there's no cancer there's no new spots are we going to stop the systemic therapy probably not Got right, it. but it's in remission in the sense that there's no active problems. Okay, that that makes sense to me. Yeah, it's, we I, wouldn't I wanna... call it cured, but you know, they could be fine for a very long time. So it's there, meaning it's not gone, but it's just kind of hanging out and not really bothering anybody. Right, it's hanging out, and we don't have any scans or way to see tiny, tiny little cells. So whether they get a CAT, a CAT scan, a PET scan, an MRI, we, we can't find it. Right. So, but we know that it's there. Well, why do we know that it's there? We know that it's there because there are thousands and thousands of other women just like that woman who, if we did nothing, the cancer would start growing again. Right. Right. So based on lots and lots of experience treating women with breast cancer, we know that if a woman has breast cancer that's metastatic, you know, sometimes it is quote unquote in remission or it could be slow growing for some time, but at some point, you know, it is going to grow if we do nothing. So they, they need to stay on treatment. And that's, again, the discussion, you know, the art and science and medicine, there's, you know, people that are on, especially again, nowadays with the newer treatments, patients can be on these treatments for a very, very long time. And that's a discussion that oncologists will have with their patient, you know, should we continue? Should we take a break? you know, how long to, to take off, how, when should we do our next scan? So it's sort of an ongoing discussion. Yeah, I hear that. I want I want to pivot a little bit and talk about prevention, um, yes. prevention and risks and things like that. What are the things that we all need to know about breast cancer prevention and risks and the information that we should all have? Yeah. So um, I would say there's there's different types of things that we need to be thinking about. One is a known problem, right? If someone has a known problem, like they have breast cancer in their family, they themselves have something growing on their in their breasts, hard, lumpy, hurting, um, you know, um, blood coming out of the nipple, anything abnormal. I'm not talking about, you know, regular, you know, some women have some breast soreness around the time that they have their period or, you know, anything abnormal, do not ignore it. You need to go see your doctor. Okay. Um, if you know that you have family members that have had breast cancer in your family, do not ignore it. Go see your doctor, have that discussion about, should I get tested? Um, people need to know that when breast cancer runs in families, it's not always from BRCA. There are other inherited mutations. And in addition, even if someone has been tested in the past, there are actually better tests now. So, you know, if, if you remember when you were little, you know, someone had breast cancer and then they got tested and it was nothing, it doesn't mean ignore it. It means you still ask the question. Um, insurance companies now are, as far as I know, from what I've heard from all my patients, um, they pay for testing now. Um, you can always call a genetic counselor and say, hey, am I eligible for testing? So if someone, again, has anything abnormal, do not ignore it. And um, the second thing is someone doesn't have anything abnormal. 
we know that again, the only criteria for getting breast cancer is having breasts. So that means any woman can get breast cancer. Um, so the standard risk goes up starting at age 40. And that's why women should start mammograms at age 40. Um, there are some recommendations that state to start at a little bit of an older age. Again, that's a discussion about healthcare in general in the United States, which, you know, none of us are immune to. There's always going to go to continue be a discussion about how much screening should we do, how much money should we spend, how much anxiety is it worth, all these kinds of questions. But generally speaking, you should start at age 40. Um, and, then, and that's for looking specifically for breast cancer. There are other recommendations also in terms of cancer screening, like starting colonoscopies at age 45, um, getting pap smears, depending on the type of pap smear that you're getting, it could be every three years, or every five years, or more often um, screening for skin cancers. So especially women that have lighter colored skin, you should be going to a dermatologist to check your skin for skin cancers. These are you know, general recommendations, again, with the goal of, if we know so many women are gonna get diagnosed with breast cancer, let's try to diagnose it early so we find it before it's big, bad, and ugly, and difficult to treat and potentially life-threatening. And then I would say the third category um, is, you know, living a healthy lifestyle. I think, you know, certainly it's very confusing, honestly, for all of us, um, even healthcare professionals, you know, what does it mean to live a healthy life? Because, you know, especially in the Instagram space, we're all bombarded with, you should do this, and you should do this, and you should do this. <laughs> but I think, you know, notwithstanding all the details which are trying to confuse us, there are general things that we know are good for us. One, eating fruits and vegetables is good for us. That's it. It's a good thing to do. More fruits and vegetables. Exercise is good for us. You know, movement. Um, whatever kind of movement that you enjoy doing is what you should be doing. You know, get up and move. It has nothing to do with how you look like. It has everything to do with your health. Um, and I think, you know, the third thing in terms of prevention, and this is not because um, we have any known link between the two, but I think just in terms of overall health and well-being, I think that mental health is something that's really, really important. I see it with my own patients going through treatment where there's certainly every reason for them to be concerned, you know, but even so, I always you know, tell my patients to prioritize their mental health and to realize that whatever they're going through is normal. I see so, so often um, women, when they finish their treatment, you know, they've been through so much. They've been through a diagnosis, they've had surgery, they've had radiation, very often they've had chemotherapy, and they just go, 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 go. You know, like like all women we know, go, 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 go. Sometimes they're working full time during treatment. They don't take time off. They have their kids, they this, right? And then all of a sudden it hits them like a ton of bricks. And they're like, oh my gosh, you know? And they start feeling overwhelmed. And I remind them, you had to go through it at some point, right? It was a health scare. It's gonna happen. You have to process those emotions. It's normal. You're going to be fine. It's over. But also you can't ignore those emotions. And I, I really see it so in, that it's important in life in general to acknowledge, you know, life can be hard. There are challenges, whether it's breast cancer, whether it's something else, 
And those emotions, they have to be processed. They cannot be ignored. You know, you can push it off for, you know, a certain amount of time, but at some point it's going to come back to you and 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 take the time to, to process it. Yeah, I, I I can definitely hear how that would how that would be the case. Thank you so much for taking the time to give me this walkthrough. There's um I I really I know for a fact that these are the kinds of episodes that really make a difference. Um and and yeah, if you're if you're someone listening to this and you're there's something that you heard that made you think maybe I should go talk to my doctor, do it. Go talk to your doctor. Uh, the worst comes to worst, you'll waste an afternoon at the office, you know, and um, in the best case scenario, you could potentially be saving your life. So, uh, Dr. Yes. Nolf, and somebody- I have to tell you, um, I actually did an Instagram live um, a couple of years ago with Sarah Rivka Cohn from Lynx Schleimies sure. Club, and we we're talking about BRCA, and there were quite a few women who, after our discussion, scheduled their first mammogram or went to see, you know, their genetic counselor and had diagnoses and you know that's a success right it's a success when someone gets a mammogram and we find a cancer that's a success that's what we want that's why we're here for it right so instead of waiting for it to grow big bad and ugly and we found it earlier instead of waiting for breast cancer to develop the person got tested for BRCA and went for a you know a breast MRI or something so we're not talking about finding you know a death sentence or destroying someone's life we're talking about preserving health and um and keeping people as healthy and happy as they can so I I really just want to underscore you know we talk about testing, you know, we're not talking about ruining people's lives and, you know, throwing cancer diagnoses on them. The reason to get screened and tested is to find things so that you can live a, a longer and, and healthier life. And if anyone, um, you know, has other health questions, I also wanted to give a shout out to JOMA, um, the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, where I'm co-founder and CEO. We have so many different health topics um, that we discuss, you know, women's health, preventative health, pediatrics. And um, if someone has topics they want to suggest, you should let us know. Yeah. And where can everyone find that information and, yeah, and sure. find you? So we're, so our website is www.joma.org. So J-O-W-M-A.org, which stands for Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We're also on Instagram um, at Joma underscore O-R-G. And my Instagram is at dr.mimi.k. Um, we also have a podcast, um, a Joma podcast, so which is run by our amazing Joma volunteer and pediatrician, Dr. Alisa Minkin, and she interviews doctors um, and healthcare professionals from all different specialties. So if you're interested in this, these types of talks, you know, uh, let us know. I definitely will. And I'm going to uh, link all of that in the show notes so that they're really easy to find. Uh, the last thing that I want to ask you, Dr. Mimi Knoll, is what does it yes. mean to you to make an impact? To me, meaning an impact means doing something to develop yourself as a person and to give back to the world. You know, it doesn't need to be something unique or different than what anyone else is doing, but it's your mark on the world. We each have so many God-given talents, and it is a responsibility to develop them and to give back because what else are we here for? I love that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Remy Noll or Joma, the links are in the show notes. On the last episode, I spoke with Shauna Alayev about her day-to-day life battling stage four breast cancer. 
Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 17 people listed up by Aura Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getaura.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fatman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.